A special welcome to you. My name's Grant, and I'm part of the team at Christchurch. I hope that you can see what was read in front of you in one format or another. It'll help you if you can, and it'll help me as well as the preacher. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to give us soft hearts as we come now to his word. Father, please would you be at work in each of us this morning. As we hear your word, would you help us to receive it with the attitude uh, that it ought to be received with? one of humility and softness and perhaps self-reflection and a desire to bring our lives in line with what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And so we ask for your help by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I was conscious that there are quite a few barriers, really, to us accepting the Word of God this morning. Um, One of the biggest ones is that we live in a human rights culture, We have certain rights that are inalienable, and if they are infringed, then you have the right to justice and to litigation and to recourse. Human rights, of course, is a good thing. It's a necessary thing, and it's improved the lives of many. The secularists want us to think that human rights are self-evident, but of course that's not true. They're not self-evident in many countries in the world today. Human rights actually come from the Bible and are a Christian idea. Valuing people just because they are people is a distinctly biblical idea which has to do with the image of God. Because every human being is made in the image of God, everyone's life has intrinsic value, whether you are black or white, or able-bodied or not, rich or poor, born or unborn, healthy or sick, old or young. Uh, What we're beginning to see in our culture, which is so saturated by human rights, it's almost impossible to imagine a culture that isn't ruled or governed by human rights. But what we are beginning to see is that human rights is becoming self-assertion. And so, for example, aspects of identity politics is very self-assertive in our world today. How are we to live as Christians in a culture where self-assertion is the order of the day? For the way of the gospel is not self-assertion, but self-sacrifice. It it couldn't be more different from that. And so you get Peter's view, which needs to become our view in verse 16. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants, literally slaves of God. Be free slaves, is what Peter is saying. That's his ethic, and that is how we are to live as Christians. Um, Can you see the obstacles for us to believe this and to live like this? Because it really goes against everything that we taught from a very young age, doesn't it? Although we have the right to dignity, we are to be willing to be treated unjustly for the good of others. That's the New Testament ethic. It's a hard pill for us to swallow, and so we really do need the Lord's help with this. Now, let's just remember where we are in 1 Peter. The first first little bit of 1 Peter, from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 10, Peter has been teaching us about our identity as Christians. So important that our identity is something that comes from outside of us. It's not something that we come up with, which is another thing in our culture, isn't it? Our culture is moving to a point where you can be whoever you want to be. You just need to decide who you feel like today, and that is who you are, 
and the rest of the world ought to treat you the way you feel. But that is not how it works in reality, and it's not how it works in God's economy. God's economy, you are who you are because of what God says and because of the identity that God confers on us. And there have been wonderful things for us to see. We are children of God. Do you remember? I'll just focus in on one thing. Just go back to chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen people. Here's your identity. You're wondering who you are. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. What a wonderful identity marker that is if you're a Christian. You are a people belonging to God. Another translation of the Bible says you are his possession. He owns you. What a wonderful thing that is. No wonder we can be called to be slaves to God, for we are owned by the great God who made the heavens and the earth. And so chapter 1 and up to chapter 2 and verse 10 is all about identity. This is who you are if you're a Christian. But from chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 4 verse 11, really the heart of the letter of 1 Peter, he's now going to change his tone a little bit and say, Given that this is who you are, this is how you ought to live. So there's a slight change uh, in direction this morning. Given who you are, identity, this is how we ought to live. A few people um, have been worried that I was going to leave out verse 11 and 12. I've had a number of conversations this week about that, but verse 11 and 12 are actually a little bit difficult to work out whether or not they go with last week's sermon or this week's sermon because they act as a hinge, really, between these two parts in Peter's letter. So we're not going to spend too much time on them, but just have a look with me at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires, uh, wage, which wage war against your soul. That is, we are to declare war against our inner desires. That's how we are to live, given who we are. And then in verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so, Fight your sin, verse 11. Live honorably in the world, verse 12. And that really acts as a heading, as a summary, if you like, for this middle part, chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11, in the book of 1 Peter. And he's now going to show us three ways, three areas of life where we can live honorably amongst the pagans. We've only got time this morning to look at the first two. But have a look, we'll come back next week for the third one, but have a look at how it breaks down. You can see it quite easily for yourself. In verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So that is submit to the government, verse 13. Look at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Uh, we'll apply that in the area of work, and some of you will think that the word slave is quite apt for how you feel about your work and your, your boss. And so submit yourself to the governments, uh, to the human authorities, submit yourself to your, to your boss. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, and you'll see why we need a whole week just on this one, it says, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husband. So that'll be next week's talk. Uh, I wonder if anybody will turn up next week for church. 
The word in the Greek is stronger than the word submitted, is the word subject yourself. And so it's got a very strong tone about it. The, the NIV has softened it a little bit for us. The word subject comes five times in 1 Peter. I've just shown you three. Uh, sub, subject yourself to the government, your boss, your husband. But also in chapter 3, verse 22, submit yourself to Jesus. And in chapter 5 and verse 5, which is going to be a very awkward sermon for me to preach, is to subject yourself to your church leaders. And this is problematic in our generation, isn't it? Because, and partly for good reasons, because of the, the abuse of power with the power differential that is starting to be focused on and spotlighted in our culture and exposed rightly. We ought to applaud the, that being exposed, the abuse of power. And, and it is true sometimes very sadly, isn't it, that churches can be the worst examples of that. And so we need to be, we, we're on quite sort of thin ice here in some ways, and we need to be careful and thoughtful and humble as we go through these verses. So I've got a tough job on my hands today and next week, um, but I want to say just two quick things. Before, this is all introduction, by the way. I haven't started yet. Um, let me just say two things by way of sidebar. I want to just say that the Bible's teaching on submission is economic and not ontological. Those are big words theologians love to use. What I mean by that is, is that um, subjecting yourself to an authority, whether it's a husband or a government or a boss or a church leader for that matter, has to do with the willing and joyful self-submission to another for the sake of order. It's economic. That's what I mean by that. It's not ontological. It doesn't mean that those who are called to submit are less equal than the authority that they are submitting to. Let's be very clear about that. Wives are not less equal to their husbands. It's not about equality. And it's very difficult for us to accept that because in our culture, hierarchy always has to do with equality. But not so in the Bible. And you can see this in the very Trinity itself, where the Son joyfully submits to the Father. The Father never submits to the Son. And that is not because the Son is less equal than the Father. It's got nothing to do with ontology, with equality. It has to do with economy. It has to do with structure and order and hierarchy. So let's bear that in mind. Is that, I hope that that's going to help us. Uh, this morning to think rightly about this. Here's my second sidebar comment, <coughs> excuse me, and that is that all of us, including the preacher this morning, are now required to subject ourselves to God's word. And so let's, let's have open hearts to hear from God, who is over all of us, as he instructs us now from his word. So I've got three headings this morning. The first is submit to the government, verses 13 to 17. It's worth pointing out, friends, that God is involved in both the secular and the sacred realms of life. We don't think, we are not dualists. We don't think that God is only operative in the spiritual realm. 
and he kind of does sorties every now and again into the physical realm. No, our view, the Bible's view, is that God is perfectly sovereign over the spiritual realm and the secular realm. And governments which fall into the secular realm uh, are only there because they are instituted by God. Um, And so when we obey human authority, whether it's a government or a teacher or a parent if you're a child, we are obeying God for God is sovereign in the secular realm as he is in the spiritual realm. And Peter gives us three reasons and one limitation when it comes to submitting to the government in this paragraph. Three reasons to submit to the government and one limitation about submitting to the government. Reason number one, verse 13, submit for the Lord's sake. That's the first thing. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, literally emperor, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. The word king in verse 13 is also translated as emperor. Let's remember when Peter is writing and to whom he's writing. He is writing to people who are at that time living under the government of Rome, with all of its decadence and corruption, and with the rise of the imperial cult, where the emperor called himself Lord and demanded worship. And Peter says, submit to that human authority. Isn't that interesting? A violent and a corrupt and a decadent government. Sounds sounds a bit familiar, actually, doesn't it? Verse 14, um, they are sent by the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Um, to governors who are sent by him. The Bible portrays for us a world that lies under the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of the Creator, who has no rivals, who is utterly unique and other, such that there is no God like him. That is the vision that the Bible has of God. And yet, God does not govern the world as the sole power. I want you to listen. I'm going to repeat that because you might not have heard that before. The Bible acknowledges that God is the supreme sovereign of the universe, but the way he governs his world is not as the sole power of the world. The way God governs his world is by means of agents and through representatives. The way my children obey God is by obeying me, for I am the agent that God has placed in their life to govern them. Do you understand the point? And so God gives delegated authority to various agents in the world who then carry out his will, whether they know it or not, whether they believe in God or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. And so he governs the world by means of agents and through representatives. Sometimes those um, agents are natural agents, governments and police and teachers and parents. Sometimes those agents are supernatural agents, like angels and even the devil in the Bible is an agent of God 
who eventually does God's will. Isn't that interesting? You can read that in the book of Job. Do you remember the story of Job? The devil comes to God and says, uh, God says to the devil, have you seen my servant Job? And the devil says, yes, he only loves you because you've made him rich. So God says, fine, take it all away from him and let's see what happens. And the devil, going about his business to try and get Job to curse God, in the end of the book of Job, Job ends up praising God. Because even though the devil is on about his own nefarious agenda, he is nevertheless an agent of God in the world, bringing about God's purposes. You mustn't think that there is a God and there is a devil and they are in cosmic battle in sort of this equal battle against each other and hopefully God wins at the end. We only believe in one God. The devil is a creature. He's not a creator. And he is under the authority of God, just like the governments and like the police and like the teachers and like the parents. And so God governs the world by way of agents. In verse 14, did you notice that Peter gives us one of the main tasks of government? Government is to reward good and to punish evil. You know, this week I had both experiences. Uh, I, was, I, I, I switched off the radio because I was so sick to death of hearing of more corruption that wasn't being checked. And then my spirits were lifted when I realized that I think it's 38 people have been arrested for the violence in KZN last July and are awaiting trial. And I thought, you know, here is, uh, it's a mixture, but I'm so pleased that evil is being punished and hopefully good is being rewarded in other contexts. That is one of the main tasks of the government. It's God's agency to pull up the handbrake of society and to reward good and to encourage good. Here's the second reason why we should submit to the government. It's verse 15, and it is to, to silence the fools. Uh, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence literally the foolish, the, sorry, the ignorant talk of foolish men. That is, Christians will silence their critics, the fools, by doing good. That's what Peter says. That's an important thing for people who are about to be persecuted by the government. It's important for them to hear that. Um, throughout this letter, Peter is concerned about the watching world, the non-Christian world, that they are not scandalized by the Christian church. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you, of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. He's worried about the watching world. And so do good so that the watching world is silenced. The fools are silenced. The ignorant are silenced. Who are the ignorant? Who are the fools? It's those who don't know Jesus. Christians will submit to the government because it's good for the gospel. It silences the fools. A good friend of mine who's a Christian uh, last year, he's a small business owner, was tempted to enter into a cash deal with a very important customer of his to avoid paying VAT. The customer, it was the customer's idea, not his idea. 
And he wrestled with it and he phoned me and we chatted about it and he went, I was so encouraged by his obedience to 1 Peter. He, um, even though he risked losing his, one of his most important customers, he said no. And I'm glad to tell you that the Lord honored him and he retained the business and his integrity and had an opportunity to speak about why he said no to this customer who was quite impressed by his integrity, even though the customer himself didn't seem to have much integrity. See, the fools are silenced when we obey, when we do good. But they are scandalized, aren't they, when we do bad or when we break the law or when we go against the authorities. It's always bad for the gospel when Christians break the law. Here is the third reason that Peter gives us to submit to the government. Verse 16, submit as servants of God. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God, as slaves of God. I think uh, Peter is asking us to recognize that above the human authority lies the ultimate authority, God. Don't forget who it is you are actually submitting to. Uh, you know, parents, it's worth um, remembering that when our children are disobedient to us, it's not their disobedience to us that ought to worry us the most. It's the fact that they are disobeying God that ought to worry us the most. It's an important perspective, that, isn't it? It takes us out of it, actually. It will also help us as parents to be careful about what we insist upon. We need to pick our right battles. Is this something that... Is this something that matters to God? Or doesn't it? Does eating with your mouth open? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? What we've done, by the way, is... I, I don't know if this is um, crooking the system here, yeah, but we've said it does matter. It is in the Bible because the Bible says, be other person-centered. And I don't want to see your masticated food at the dinner table. But as we submit to the human authorities that God has put in place, we are submitting to God. And so submit as servants of God. But remember that you're free, says verse 16, doesn't it? Live as free men, live as servants. Here is the Christian contradiction. Although we are free, we are willing to limit our freedoms and serve God for the sake of others. Verse 17, respect, show proper respect to everyone. Isn't that an important verse for us as a church? It's so important for us to hear in a society with alternative lifestyles and moralities, with many people who we disagree with, in their lifestyle choices and even find it reprehensible in certain cases, but we are never to disrespect or hate them. Christians are not homophobes or transphobes or xenophobes. We are respecters of people, even if we disagree with them and find their lifestyles reprehensible. And so respecting people who are different to us is a biblical idea. There it is, verse 17. 
Let's not be bullied by our press, which keeps on representing Christians as the intolerant phobes of the world. Here it is. In the New Testament, here is the ethic. Respect everyone, he says. It's, it, tolerance is actually a biblical and a Christian invention that is now so permeated our society that people think that it is merely self-evident that we should be tolerant. It's not self-evident. It has to be revealed by God. Can you imagine how challenging this must have been to, to the first hearers of Peter's book, Peter's letter, living in the Roman uh, situation that they were in, in that context, with uh, lots of alternative moralities, lifestyles. Don't hate them. Don't, dis don't dismiss them. Don't disrespect them. Respect them. So submit to the governing authorities, but I know what you're thinking. How far do we go with that? And so he's given us three reasons to submit, and now he gives us one limitation, which you'll see in the second part of verse 17. Love the brotherhood of believers. Here's the limitation. Fear God and honor the king. Fear God and honor the king. I think what he's saying there to us is there is a limitation to obeying the authorities. Go as far as you can to honor the king. However, if the king commands what God forbids, or if the king forbids what God commands, then rather fear God. Now say that again. Go as far as you can to honor the king. But if the king commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then rather fear God and take what comes. For the, the listeners of 1 Peter, that would have been very in their face because it wouldn't be long before they were called upon to say Caesar is Lord, which is something that God forbids. And many of them refused to do it and entered into civil disobedience and got what they got, which was death, being torn apart by wild animals. And so there are times when Christians enter into civil disobedience against the authorities and face the consequences of that. But we need to be very clear about what the things are, what battles do we pick, which hills do we die on. And that has to be governed by the Bible. So a few years ago, there was a big furore in the Christian community when the government outlawed the spanking of children in homes. Do you remember that? And Christians were very, very upset about that because the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child, doesn't it? It comes from the book of Proverbs. And so... Many Christians were saying the government has said this, but the Bible says this, and so we are going to enter into civil disobedience against the government. It was an unfortunate stance for them to take because the spare the rod, spoil the child verse in the book of Proverbs is not a command. It's an observation. It's a different kind of literature. It's not thou shalt spank thy child. It's an observation of Undisciplined children go bad. Because the book of Proverbs is observational, it's not commanding. 
So you've got to be careful, haven't you, how you apply the Bible. However, uh, if and when the government instruct Christian ministers to conduct same-sex marriages, that's a different matter, isn't it? Because there are commands about that matter in the New Testament, as unpopular as they are, as old-fashioned as they seem to our culture. And so in the case of, of spare the rod, spoil the child, you can obey the government. In the case of same-sex marriage being commanded for Christian ministers, which thankfully hasn't happened yet, though there is a movement to get that to happen, and we may need to give up our marriage licenses as a result of that, we would have to enter into civil disobedience and face what comes, because that is to command something that God forbids. And so there's a limitation to that which can be applied, by the way, to all human authority. I've spent a long time on that first point. Sorry about that. Here's the second point. Um, I'll be much quicker on this, and then we'll end with the third point. Uh, so basically, you're not getting out early today. Sorry about that. Submit to your boss, secondly. Verses 18 to 20. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Literally, the word for slave can also be translated as domestic servant. Uh, they are most vulnerable people in, in the society then and probably in our society today as well. Let's remember that verse 16 has taught us that we are all slaves to God. So we need to understand, we need to be, make sure that we understand that we also are slaves. And it's not wrong for us to apply this to a work situation in a culture that no longer has slavery in it. Thank God. And the application for us is to willingly subordinate ourselves to our employer. And that subordination does not depend on the moral goodness of your employer, but it depends on the will of God. And so Christians, hear this, submit to your boss even when he or she is unjust. How contrary this ethic is to the world. How unappealing and out of tune with SA labor relations. In our world, when your boss is unjust, you take him to the CM CCMA, or you go on strike against her, or you go slow, or you make demands. And from the youngest age, we are taught to assert ourselves. But the Bible recognizes a category of suffering that you sign up for when you become a Christian called unjust suffering. It's a, it's a category, this is what you've, we've signed up for as Christians, is that we will often suffer unjustly. And why would anybody be willing to do that? It's because we've got a different perspective. Look at verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God, literally mindful of God. See, we, we answer to a higher authority and we have a better hope, a much better hope. And so we entrust ourselves to God, recognizing that a day of vindication will come. This is what we've been called to, unjust suffering. 
It's a tragic thing to me that there are many Christian churches around the world today, and particularly on our own continent, which say, come to Jesus and all of your problems will be solved. Can you hear Peter saying, come to Jesus and he might mess up your life? It's very different that, isn't it? Unjust suffering is what we ought to expect as Christians from our boss or from the government or from whatever authority you are called upon to submit to. Let me quickly go to the third heading this morning. And we can't skip over this because verses 21 to 25 are absolutely magnificent. For it is sketching out for us the great example of Christ. And so follow Christ's example, verse 21 to 25 is my third heading. Peter lays out for us the example of Jesus. Um, look at verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Do you see it? Here is the example of Christ that we are to emulate and to follow. In verse 22, he draws on a key Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, which is a prophetic picture of the Messiah as the suffering servant. We are called upon to follow Jesus and to become more and more like him. Do you think you won't suffer? Because he did. So if you're going to follow Jesus, then you will as well. And there are three essential truths about the death of Jesus that are an example to us in our suffering. Number one, verse 22, his suffering was undeserved. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And so it was undeserved suffering. And how did he respond? He didn't go on strike. He didn't sue. He didn't litigate. He didn't contact Amnesty International and demand his rights. This is what he did, and this is what we are to do. Second thing, verse 23, entrust yourself to God. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As Christians, when we are suffering unjustly, we are to focus in on judgment day. Judgment day is a great, it's, it's one of the greatest comforting doctrines to a Christian. For a day will come when you will be vindicated and where everybody will know the truth. That's how Jesus suffered, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, patient and waiting and mindful of God. Last thing, verse 24 he suffered for the good of others. Look at verse 24. Remember, Peter is saying this is an example to us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, obviously, there's a limit to the example of Jesus there. We can't die for the sins of ourselves, never mind anybody else. But there is a principle embedded in verse 24, which is suffering for the good of others, putting up with unjust suffering for the good of others. That's what Jesus did for you, and it's how we are to live for one another. Because, you know, the undeserved suffering of Jesus, do you know what it brought? It brought us undeserved grace. And so we ought to be willing to be made uncomfortable or to be put out or to suffer or to even be persecuted for the salvation and the good 
of others. That is our example. A willingness to live and to suffer and to die for the salvation of others. That's the challenge for us all this morning. And you know what the great comfort is? The very last verse, which I'll end with now. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's wonderful that he includes both shepherd and overseer. Overseer reminds us who the real ruler of the world is, the Lord Jesus. But shepherd reminds us that we are the treasured sheep of God. Here is a ruler who is never going to treat you unjustly. He loves you. He's died for you. He's held nothing back from you. You can trust him. So as we submit to human authority, will we trust our shepherd and our overseer? Let's pray. Father, would you please help us this morning to to obey and to trust and to believe your word. We thank you for the direction that you give us and ask that we would respond rightly to it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to end our time together by standing and singing How Deep.